Welcome to Rad People I Know. This is a podcast about how extraordinary people are every day. Life is not just about what you do, but who you are in what you do. All of us know a whole bunch of rad people. These are some of mine. I hope you enjoy their stories. All right. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm pleased to have on the podcast Robert Haynes Peterson, an old, old friend of mine who um, accidentally became a leisure journalist of uh, good, excellent repute in New York and um, has had all kinds of fabulous experiences uh, based on that role. So we're going to talk a little bit about how he got into that and all those wonderful things. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) It's my pleasure. Excellent. All right. So I'll start with the first question. Uh, How did we meet? So we met at Women College, and it was our freshman year, I believe. And um, I don't remember exactly because our lives intersected off and on, you know, throughout the our time there. Um, But I think you initially you I think you were friends with Vicky Haig. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and so I think that was probably our first connection because I was I was uh, hanging out with her quite a bit. uh, freshman year playing racquetball and other things. And then I think when we, like our big connection was Renaissance Fair. That's right. Or Renaissance yeah. Fest, uh, uh, Renaissance, what was it? Consort. Ren- yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah. And pl- playing rackets and, and uh, recorders and, and all sorts of fantastic medieval uh, and Renaissance instruments. Yeah. Um, and that was a super blast. And, that was super uh, fun with Kate Brocker. Yeah. 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 And, I want to ask you, like, how, I want to know how you came to join. Cause I know for me, I think I'd gone to some fall concert they put on and I was just, I always loved Renaissance music. And I, I was just like, man, how hard would it be to learn those instruments? And obviously I was a music major. And so I instantly wanted to join, had never played any of those instruments before but uh, came in. So it was just a spur of the moment. Had you played before? How did you? So I, I don't remember exactly. I think it's, I think it's important that, that, uh, you know, one thing the listeners for the listeners is that Kate, Professor Kate Brocker was not a music teacher. She was an no. astronomy professor. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was the kind of her side hustle. And, uh, so I think I, I'm I'm fairly certain because there was an annual little annual Renaissance fair. So I was playing music with the orchestra. I played uh, French horn and trumpet. And That's right. Yeah, and uh, so I had played with the the college orchestra and and really like very minorly with the Walla Walla Symphony as like a uh, what do you call it like an um, if somebody was sick they oh, call like me and see if I. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I think I had to have seen them during the Renaissance festival and there might even have been a little recruiting or announcement or something that Kate had made at some point. And similar thing. I was like, I don't know anything about, rec- you know, Renaissance mm-hmm. music. I, pr- I played recorder in third grade, like everyone else and hated <laughs> it with a passion. And, uh, and I don't know why I picked it, um, but it was a blast. We'd meet at our little house, and it was this little mm. group of nerds. You know, we might as well have been playing D&D or something. And 
And there were all these bizarre instruments that I'd never heard of, you know, sack butts and rackets. And, you know, most of them were uh, woodwind instruments of some mm-hmm. kind. So that was a new experience for me, playing double reeds and playing, you know, all those kind of things. Well, uh, and I, I think the good thing about those instruments, if my if I may use the term, the fingering was the same. So <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, um, once you understood what the scales did, you could easily translate it to the other instruments. Move from one to the other, right? Move, so once you yeah. mastered the recorder, then it was easy to write. Yeah, exactly. it was easy to go. And I mean, we had... Um, vile players as well we had like lucy peckham who was a cello player yeah she did all the string stuff i will i do have to say that uh one of the actual music professors at whitman dr pickett who i also do an episode with on this she basically because she has perfect pitch it was so painful for her to go to (laughs) concerts with the renaissance consort because we weren't always perfectly in tune because those instruments you know, it's 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 hard to play them. You know, yeah, you have the really. combination of, of primitive instruments that are, you know, n- hard to tune, and then people brand new on them, and then we're doing it relatively casually. You know, we're meeting once every week or two. Yeah. Uh, with different skill levels. So it was a little bit of a, but I can imagine that was tough on her. <laughs> she was like, what are you doing in that group? I'm like, Oh, it's so much fun. I just love it. <laughs> so the highlight I, that I remember is coming to Seattle where I am now or the yes. Seattle area and performing somewhere. I wish I could remember where we performed. I can't remember. And, uh, staying at, at, was it Lucy's house? We stayed at Lucy's house. Yeah. And, Which uh, looked- you know, I don't know. Do you remember this? It actually, I felt like it looked like a ship on the inside. It was all like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It was one of those older clapboard houses that they're so common here. And yeah, it felt, and I think we were all kind of sleeping in the living room or something. (laughs) And, uh, that was all blast. And of course we went to the Neptune theater, which just turned a hundred years old and, uh, watched uh, Rocky horror. And it was the first time that I had seen, you know, growing up in Boise, I would go to the midnight movies and see Rocky Horror, but we'd all sit on our seats and yell and throw things. This was the first time that I saw like, you know, people reenacting all the characters uh, while the movie was going on and not just an opening scene, but like the whole movie, people yeah. down on the ground in co- full costume and stuff. And that was uh, quite an experience. That was great. Yeah. That was like, that was, yeah, that was one of those like great college getaways that, uh, <laughs> you know, stick with me every day when I walk past the Neptune now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh man, that was the best trip. I loved it as well. It was so great. You kind of felt, you know, later on when I played in a rock band, you know, that was like a true gig experience on the road gig experience. We it totally it was. But yeah, yeah. 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 We're all in like one van. We all stay in one room. We all, you know, do our yeah. gig and then have a mini party because we're nerds. Yeah, and- that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you moved into the non nerd world very nicely Uh, thank you i think a little bit anyway well you too rock star (laughs) yeah oh it took a while (laughs) (laughs) um all right so let's talk about that so i mean you know we sort of interacted a bit in college you were a philosophy major geology major geology major geology with an anthro minor yeah yeah that's right i remember we spoke about this last time that's right so what happened um after graduation, like how did you and Kimberly get to New York? You know, you're from a small town, you have a geology anthropology (laughs) situation and you end up like writing about spirits and traveling the world to 
exclusive whiskey places. <laughs> it's quite a transition. So yeah, how, it was, how did that all was, start? There was definitely a story arc. There was definitely so I. Uh, my parents were both journalists, uh, so growing up, I was I was always in that world, and uh, uh, in fact, my first uh, masthead credit was when I was maybe three or four years old. It was Printer's Devil, at a at a ghost town uh, newspaper that my parents would help out on the summers. My dad worked at the regional, you know, bigger regional newspaper, but they'd help this little ghost town newspaper with hot lead and. Benjamin Franklin presses and everything. Wow. What's a printer's devil for? It's just a kid that's under your feet all the time when you're trying to make a newspaper. (laughs) I don't even know if it's a real, uh, uh, masthead title, but that's what it was. And, uh, um, so I grew up with that and I, I was on the school newspaper in high school and, uh, and then helped out, um, on special advertising sections in the, in the local Gannett paper, even before I got to college. And so I went to college, but nestled in with, with all of that, I had no desire to be in journalism. Right. Um, sort of like Al Pacino in uh, The Godfather, right? No desire and, to uh, do the family business. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and what I wanted to be was an archaeologist. And in second, first or second grade, long, long before Indiana Jones or Jurassic Park, I had written, when I grow up, I want to be either an archaeologist or a paleontologist. And uh, came to Whitman actually as a chemistry major, um, and found out that I sucked at chemistry. <laughs> and um, so I, I went into geology because Whitman at the time didn't have an anthropology major. Um, and in the meantime, I was doing uh, the college radio station, and I was the news director mm-hmm. for that. And I was working with the Pioneer off and on. And I would end up my senior year. I would work at one of the regional, one of the local radio stations in in uh, the Boise area. Um, doing both uh, news and regular DJing. So again, it just kind of was like um, enmeshed in me. But we, after Whitman, uh, so for anyone, my, I met my wife at Whitman. And um, uh, were you a Kappa? I can't remember. Yes, I was. Yes. I was a late I was a late joiner. Both <laughs> myself and Tommy Rogers joined our yeah. senior year. Yeah, we Kimberly was an early leaver. <laughs> so I don't think <laughs> I think her senior year she didn't really participate anymore, but she loved it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we uh, yeah we moved down to Arizona because so I actually I I started doing archaeology projects my senior year in college. We were lucky enough we had somebody from Washington State finishing her PhD, and so we did field work with her. And I uh, the summer. I'm going to get the timeline wrong, but I think the summer between my junior and senior year, I worked on a project in uh, Boise, a historic ar- archaeology project, and it was my first paid archaeology gig. And uh, so we went I, we went down to Arizona, and I went to Arizona State uh, for graduate school in archaeology uh, the year after Kimberly graduated, and she was a year behind us. Right. So that was going to be my... Uh, career and destiny. And it was for about 12 years in Arizona, uh, New Mexico, later in Idaho and Wyoming and Montana. And I worked on excavations and I saw amazing stuff. And we worked on incredible uh, sites that were nearly Indiana Jones level in terms of the cool stuff that we found and the interesting people we worked with and everything else. I worked for the Navajos for a couple of years. Um, 
and uh, you know, it was fantastic. And so, uh, what, what's what's one of the most um, memorable or fascinating sites or experiences during that time? So we worked on a site on the Arizona New Mexico border, kind of almost to the Four Corners area. So it's kind of high desert, really dry. And uh, we were uh, excavating. There had been a big oil spill, like storage tank spill. And so we had to, so they had to clean all the dirt, the oil out of all the dirt. And they found this whole set of uh, uh, burials around a a pueblo from about a thousand years ago or so. Wow. Maybe a little younger. And uh, so we were tasked with removing the individuals. And at that point, you had to work very closely with the tribes. You do now, but this was new to archaeology. Uh, you had to work very closely with the tribes. They had to give permission for you to work with, uh, you know, the buried individuals, whatever process, if they, you know, if they could prove affinity, whatever process, you know, they requested, you know, whether it was full excavation or a ceremonial kind of replacement or whatever, we got to do full excavation. But the, the thing about it, so we worked on, I don't know, several hundred individuals around this Pueblo, uh, and the part I remember was uh, um, after the excavation, uh, I was at a party, a neighbor's party, and she was a high school teacher. And so most of her friends were high school teachers and they were young and, and cool, you know, and whatever. And <laughs> I was in the kitchen at the party and there were these three young women, very beautiful women. And they're, I'm talking to them, like getting a drink or something. They're like, so what do you do? And I said, I'm an archaeologist. And they said, wow, that's really interesting what's the coolest thing you've ever found? And I said, well, I was working on this project with these individuals and it's high desert. So great preservation. So I'm excavating and each burial has like decorated pottery and and turquoise jewelry around the wrists and around turquoise belts, all this stuff. But the coolest thing was on two of the individuals I worked on. I, I pulled up their skull and I reached in and their brains were still in there. It was a little dried nugget, a little walnut. No was their way. brain. And I'm holding a thousand-year-old brain in my hand. And the three women left. They were <laughs> like, that's not cool. And I found out the answer is, have you ever watched Indiana Jones? It's precisely like that all the time, every day. <laughs> when you're talking to beautiful women, you, you that's the answer. Exactly. It's not punching a- Nazis and jumping out of airplanes and everything else. Fighting off snakes. It's not holding shriveled brains in your hand. No, 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 no. That does not. It's not an opening line that works. <laughs> and uh, so I, I worked in archaeology for about 12 years in uh, the West. And then we uh, decided it was time to move to New York City. And, uh, and my wife had always wanted to move there since she was like five years old. I had been in ninth grade and loved it. Um, and that was back when it was like taxi driver era, you know, yeah, it was pretty, else. pretty it was, rough. Yeah, it was <laughs> awesome. And, and, and those were the days when a ninth grader on a school trip could just head out on his own <laughs> and <laughs> nobody cared. And, uh, so I, I love New York city. And, uh, so we decided it was time to move there and that was in, uh, 98 and moving there. Well, there were two things. One is, uh, it, uh contract archeology span has all sorts of rules and requirements and licensing and everything else. And, and the rules and requirements in the East coast are a little different than in the West coast. So it would essentially mean, I mean, you're not passing the bar again, but it would essentially mean new certification, new approval. And there just weren't as many jobs um, mm. because there's not all the federal land and state land and everything else that has to be mitigated. 
So I was trying to figure out what to do. The benefit of being there in 1998 was the economy was super strong. Yeah. And basically, if you could breathe, you could get a job. <laughs> and uh, I ended up at, I ended up doing a writing workshop and kind of getting the bug for writing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I ended up at a group of collectibles magazines. And so they were, uh, one was called Collector Editions. And it was like Yadros and, and Hummel figurines and all those kind of things. <laughs> one was called Dolls Magazine. And it was all these fashion dolls, like high-end art dolls and things like that. And then one was called Teddy Bear Review. And uh, it was teddy bears. And, uh, and I ended up uh, being an editor there. And uh, Okay, I got to stop you. So in a teddy bear magazine, like, what are you sort of editing? Like, are people, are people submitting articles about? And these are stuffed teddy bears, obviously. Yeah, so, so at the time, uh, collecting was really huge. So it was, you know, kind of the the beanie baby wave of collecting and the, some of those kind of things. And so people were, were making these kind of artisan bears. And in fact, that was my, my first celebrity. I had two celebrity interviews through that one was, uh, Richard Simmons, who, uh, (laughs) had a bear line. I actually, I don't know if I can find this. Hang on. I just came across this picture. So obviously your, your listeners won't be able to see it, but, uh, <laughs> oh wow, that's amazing! Yeah, me and Richard Simmons and my little gorilla Congo is there. That's and, uh, crazy. You read my aura. Uh, apparently, it's cerulean and something else. I don't remember. What's cerulean? Is that a color? I think it's green. green. I don't know. <laughs> um, and then the other was Marie Osmond, who had a collection of art dolls that she was selling, uh, kind of Franklin Mint style, you know, collectibles. Wow, um, what was she like? She was awesome. She was super nice, super sweet, super open. And, um, they actually had, so this is kind of where I'm going with this. They, these, these high-end fashion dolls would have, uh, fashion designers make the clothing for them. So, you know, back in the day it was like Bob Mackey, but it was all the way up to like Narcissa Rodriguez and, you know, all these people were making these high. So one of the things they would do was they had a, a runway fashion show every toy fair. So toy fair, in February, canceled this year, unfortunately, because of Omicron. Um, but it's a big trade show in New York uh, and Berlin and a couple other places mm-hmm. where basically all the new toys come out, all the, you know, everybody wants to be the latest fad, whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, so as part of this, they had this full-on human runway fashion show, but with fashions that had been made for these kind of fancy Barbies, right? And uh, wow. so she was always involved with that and... Um, so, uh, but, uh, so I, I, I did that, uh, and then nine 11 happened and, Ooh. um, and a bunch of stuff, the NASDAQ crashed that May. So magazines were suddenly went from a couple inches thick to like a quarter inch thick. Cause the internet was also taking over. Yeah. And, uh, so we, and we were downtown when nine 11 happened and we already knew our magazine was, was closing, but this was like, you know, a nail in the coffin as it were. And, uh, but I got lucky. I started applying around and because of this fashion doll and fashion designer connection of all things, I applied at a group of uh, collectible, uh, uh, um, a group of fashion trade magazines. And, um, 
so these were this was a group of magazines that competed essentially with Women's Wear Daily and some of the like uh, industry um, uh, apparel tracking and trend magazines and stuff. And because so I go into interview and they hand me three or four issues of of, of the magazine. And I start looking through it. And because of this connection with the collectibles dolls, and I, di- I didn't mention the reason, one of the reasons I got the collectibles magazines was my archaeology background, um, because none of the editors were actually collectors. And um, so I had this, you know, experience with organizing and cataloging. And I when we had our own mini collections and stuff. Um, so now I have a fashion connection with the fashion dolls. And I literally go through the trade magazine and circle all these designers that I've met or the publicists that I know or whatever. So I get this job suddenly uh, in fashion. And so now I'm going to fashion week twice a year uh, as wow. well as twice a year. And then we're going, <laughs> the best part was they had just, uh, so they had uh, one magazine that was like women's fashion and jewelry and, and things like that. One that was uh, children's clothing. I forget what the third one was. And then they were launching a new magazine, which is why they were bringing me on board, which was called uh, Body. And it was Intimate Apparel. And which, of course... What a bummer know, for you. Yeah, I know. It's such a bummer. <laughs> and so one of the one of the challenge or one of the tasks afforded me or required of me was to go to uh, Paris and Lyon uh, for Interfilier, which is the essentially the, the ready-to-wear version of Intimate Apparel and Swimwear. And so I would have what to spend, suffering, you know. I know, I would have to spend a week trapped in uh, a, a, an exhibition hall with hundreds of women in their underwear. <laughs> and uh, it was hell, it was hell, it was hell. <laughs> and uh, so that turned out to be a real trial by fire job. It was very small, it was a mom and pop operation. They actually went, they were on a trip somewhere and put me in charge. I'd been the, at the magazines for, I don't know, not even a year, a few months. And they were like, well, if everything comes out on time, uh, you'll be managing editor. I'm like, cool. And uh, not only did everything come out on time, it came out ahead of time. Um, and because uh, those were the days of taking your, you know, your your uh, 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 film to the printer, you know, and getting on a subway to uh, uh, Long Island City, Queens before it was cool and finding the warehouse and the, you know, the East Asian printer and, you know, dropping everything off and fighting with them about ink colors and everything like that. Um, but that was where I started really getting to explore, you know, more this world of high fashion, of celebrities, of, you know, and, and it was like there, there was a, there was a time, you know, it was when hip hop artists were starting to really mm-hmm. get into their own uh, lines and so there was a, a party I went to with uh, and ended up sitting next to Russell Simmons. It was his party. I don't even know why I was in his banquet. He, he didn't know why I was there. He's literally <laughs> to, like talking to this, uh, like one of his uh, assistants. He's like, who is this guy? <laughs> like, I don't know. That's uh, hilarious. <laughs> we went um, uh, ice, uh, um, ice tea was launching an active wear line. And it was in a strip club and which I didn't realize when I invited my plus one. And, uh, so they took over the strip club and, you know, the, the people in like, uh, you know, uh, track suits and everything were, you know, on stage and hanging around the poles and everything. 
And then there was an after party in the little VIP section, which was just this little kind of cordoned off section by the stage. So we're in there with uh, Ice-T and Dr. Dre and uh, Coco and everybody. And there's all these strippers around. <laughs> it was amazing. And uh, so that was kind of my first, uh, you know, uh, exposure into this kind of elevated level of New York, right? You know, yeah. this, this other world. Um, I just saw Andre, Andre uh, uh, Tully died and he was always at Fashion Week, always larger than life. Yes. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then our son was born. And this... Uh, the problem with being at a small mom and pop shop with four magazines is you work till midnight all the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so, um, and Kimberly was lucky enough. She's in advertising. She was lucky enough to have a job waiting for her when, when she felt Ross was old enough. Uh, so I left that gig and as luck would have it, I had traveled to Birmingham, Alabama, uh, for a trade conference about spandex because of the intimate apparel magazines and uh, an Italian uh, manufacturing group that had a factory down there was celebrating its 10th anniversary and they flew us down and they wind and literally wind and dined us. Like I'd never a factory making spandex, like took us out to the best dinners, had a huge wow. party. And I met this uh, editor. I just have to say there's a lot of money in, you know, containing women's fat and, and making excavations. There's a lot it of money. It seems to be a very in-demand... Uh, actually, <laughs> um, the creator of Spanx was like, she was just starting out when I was there, so oh, I would interview Sarah. her all the time. What's her and name? Last name? Sarah? I can't remember. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, I can't remember. Anyway. Uh, but it was funny because there was a transition while I was there from when you could pick up the phone and call her and get a trend report to all of a sudden you couldn't even talk to her publicist. Right, wow. you would just get press releases, and that was it because she had gone from this woman work essentially working in her uh, you know garage or apartment or whatever to a global empire. Yeah, and um, uh, but we were so we were down there this uh, this spandex company, and I met this uh, uh, editor in chief of a group of luxury magazines, and it was when I was leaving uh, uh, the fashion magazines. And she knew I had a one-year-old and stuff. And I said, you know, well, let's stay in touch, whatever, whatever. And uh, about the time I was, I reached out and I said, hey, uh, you know, I, I'd like to do some freelancing. So my first uh, article with them was actually about, so they had a group of fashion and jewelry magazines and watch magazines. And my first article with them was about the history of jewelry, the, the kind of archaeological history of jewelry. And so oh, I pulled wow. in. So I went around to all these museums and, and resources around New York City and talked to the the person at the Met that was, you know, archives all their uh, uh, prehistoric and historic jewelry and kind of, you know, did this history of how we got to where we are with gold and silver and platinum and diamonds and emeralds and stuff. And, um, and that led to becoming managing editor of that magazine group. And so all wow. of a sudden now I'm dealing with yachts and destination clubs and, uh, and, uh, you know, just these incredible, insane, super high end, you know, uh, Piaget watches and, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Prada suits and everything else. And, and just being thrust all the way up to the top of, uh, luxury lifestyle. Wow. 
And then to finish that off, part of that, I, I, this is a long trajectory, but to, uh, part of that, I started getting into getting invites to wineries and distilleries around the world. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be when the whole kind of craft cocktail um, thing was emerging, right? The speakeasies and the, and the high quality cocktails and everything like that. And I happened to be in New York when that was happening. Um, so I, I started getting more and more involved in that and more interested. And the time came, my contract was up with this group of magazines and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, now I have this experience under my belt. I'll go, you know, I'll go to Forbes or I'll go to fortune or I'll go to, and then the world fell apart. 2007, 2008, the entire economy vanished and all magazine and website jobs disappeared. Yeah. Um, so I started freelancing, specializing in wine and spirits and cocktails. And that took me in a a whole new direction. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where I've been the last decade is covering, you know, bar openings and interviewing bartenders and going to vineyards around the world and distilleries around the world. And that's taken me to Scotland and Argentina and Taiwan. And I was actually, we just had a new ice cream shop open up here. uh, And I was like, asking the owner, I was like, wait, this is, this is a Taiwan-based ice cream shop, right? And he goes, yeah. And he goes, it's in like a, a mall, uh, you know, kind of in the center of town. He goes, yeah, how do you know that? I'm like, oh, I was there for Cavalon whiskey. And he's like, oh my God, Cavalon, I love Cavalon. <laughs> and, uh, but that's been a fantastic arena for travel, for luxury, mm-hmm. for meeting, you know, obviously meeting celebrities because uh, every celebrity has a, a whiskey brand or a tequila brand now. Um, and so that, yeah, so that's how I got from Boise to New York. And then we moved to Seattle about three years ago. That's quite a journey to New York. (laughs) Yeah, a little long. Sorry about that. No, 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 no. I think it's really fascinating. And, um, I, it sounds like you've really suffered your way up to the top there. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody has to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Um, I've got a few questions. So I first want to touch on the luxury brands and, and that sort of thing. Um, so what were some of the, I guess, favorite celebrity um, liquor or, you know, some some of the celebrities out there that you feel like, yeah, they're really, you know, because I got to be honest, I tried Snoop Dogg's red wine and he's not a winemaker. He's <laughs> not a winemaker. Probably better <laughs> in the kitchen with Martha Stewart. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, like who's who's doing it well? And, um, and also I want to know, like, what is it about our fascination with luxury? Like, what is it that we, um, that keeps us so captivated by the celebrity luxury lifestyle And what are your thoughts on that? So, yeah. So I think that that first one's a really good question. Cause I, 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 I think as with class and wealth and everything else there, there's like several parallel paths going on. Right. So there's, there's, you know, what you might kind of arrogantly call old money or old class or whatever, which is, you know, this kind of concept that there's a social structure that is is just kind of so elevated in its refinement and refinery that, you know, it just it it just is, it just exists, right? And it's it's gonna gravitate towards you know, handcrafted leather, Italian shoes, and it's going to gravitate towards, um, you know, uh, uh, bespoke suits from Savile Row. Like, and and part of that is obviously maintaining this this kind of increased class level, but part of it is being able to afford just the best of the best and the best of quality. So I think that's one form of luxury, which is 
you know, there's a reason a t-shirt at target costs, you know, $5. It's like, it's made with essentially slave labor. It's, uh, you know, made in a country with no environmental controls, but it's also made with the cheapest, cheapest possible. And, and you know, and I don't mean to shout out target in particular, any, any kind of, um, um, but it's made with just the, the most inexpensive, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, machinery and, and materials possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there's this one, that, and I always, I always kind of say this with whether you're talking about watches or, or champagne or whatever is like, there's absolutely a difference between the $10 model and the hundred or thousand dollar model. Mm-hmm. And when you move above that, it gets so, um, the differences are so, you know, small and incremental that it gets harder and harder to tell. Mm-hmm. But, so then I think there's the, the, the aspirational, you know, kind of trend luxury thing, which is, uh, the rest of us want that kind of stuff. Um, but either we are not, um, I don't know the best way to say it. either. We're not so ingrained in that world that it just comes naturally. Right. So we have to like kind of trust to the marketing that we're getting something valuable mm-hmm. or we're getting the best that we can get. Right. So the whole idea of, you know, Dolce and Gabbana having a, a, a t-shirt line that says Dolce and Gabbana on it. Right. Yeah, right. Like, well, that's not, they didn't design that. Right. No, that's just a, but at least it gives us a sense of that. And then if we can afford a couple of DNG pieces, then, then we feel special, you know, and we feel like we're, we're making it right. You know, or mm-hmm. Lord, I have a, a friend's daughter who just loves her handbags and, you know, she mm-hmm. will spend thousands on handbags and that's mm-hmm. her thing. And I'm like, well, I don't get it, but you know, She's buying legitimate kind of high-end luxury pieces. And then you have this kind of striver celebrity thing that I think is really, uh, I mean, it's always been around, but I think is really magnified with hip hop culture Mm -hmm. where, you know, calling out certain names and, you know, um, brandishing certain brands and names is like, is like status, even if you don't have status, right. You know, it's like, is like, you know, well, this year, this product or this brand or this car is the thing that like marks my arrival. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm not singling out just hip hop cause it happens everywhere. But I think that that in pop culture that got like hugely magnified. Mm. And so, you know, celebrities, we've been groomed certainly since, uh, the silent film era or the studio era that celebrities, you know, have something extra, have something that we don't have, know something that we don't have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they become our friends. True? Do you think that's actually true? That's uh, not usually. I, it was funny. I was watching, I've been, I've been going down this rabbit hole on YouTube with all the, um, uh, GQ and, and vibe and, uh, and, um, who's the other one that does it, but they do these like, you know, like there's the breakdown, which is celebrities going through their actors going through their kind of iconic film roles. And then there's, um, there's the uh, uh, Google question where they'll, you know, the, they'll have these questions that people commonly ask on Google and then they'll answer them. And sometimes they're bizarre and sometimes they're funny and stuff. And there was somebody, I don't remember who I was watching, but I was like, they just stood out from the pack as somebody like, and I don't think they were acting. I think they were like very intelligent, but also very keyed into the things that they're status and power and money allowed them to buy. Right. Mm-hmm. So sometimes, but I don't think normally it's true. I think yeah. they're, they have a job and they're good at their job 
and they may not be good at anything else. You yeah, know, it's yeah. kind of like the, you know, the surgeon who's great at, you know, repairing hands, but couldn't, you know, <laughs> couldn't get you through uh, uh, Home Depot to save his life. Or yeah, yeah, life, yeah, yeah. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I think we've invested in celebrities and, you know, athletes the same way, this kind of otherness. And so mm-hmm. if, if we're, if we're looking up to them and then they release a, you know, a sportswear line or a, or a, a tequila, you know, we're going to respond viscerally to that, like, you know, Pavlovian, mm. a Pavlovian response. Now to answer, Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I almost feel like celebrities. So you were talking a little bit before about old money and that class where, you know, that's just where they lived. Right. And I feel in a way that, celebrities have bridged that gap between us yes. regular people, you know, um, accessing the, the luxury of old money, you know, um, it's like a bridge to say, Oh, this person came from, you know, nothing, you know, and yeah. they've made themselves into something and they're experiencing this whole lifestyle. It's possible for me. I can also it's, do that. You know? Yeah, that's true. Whereas with distinct class differences, we knew we would never get from, you know, yeah. working class to middle class to upper class to wealthy to yeah. nobility. Right. But, and I think that, I think that's a really good, you know, I've, I've read, uh, uh, quite a bit of, um, stuff about, uh, poverty cycles and, how uh, there are elements of uh, daily culture that wherever you land on that, you know, you don't have to be poor to be kind of surrounded by your world, uh, you know, how you know, how you behave, how you consume entertainment, how you react to your neighbors, how you, you know, every, everything about your life in part is determined by kind of this, this socioeconomic sphere that you grew up in. Right. Yep. And, um, and breaking out of that can be harder than, than we realize, mm-hmm. right? How we approach money growing up in kind of, you know, working class to middle class, you know, my parents were both journalists. They didn't have a ton of money, uh, ever. Mm. Um, you know, I was, I said, there was something on Facebook, like, how did you know when the, the paycheck was gone at the end of the month when you were a kid? I'm like, when we got powdered milk on our cereal, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and our, and our food what came out, it was made by Dinty Moore. You know, and Chef yeah. Uh, Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I grew up, I was adopted into a home. I was the only one that went to college, right? So I was super focused on it. I don't even know. I think, I think that was more, um, you know, I mean, of course my parents wanted me to go to college, but it wasn't 100% environmental. And one thing I noticed later on, though, is that, you know, the, the talk that they had around money, it was always like, you know, there's not enough and like, you know, constantly budget. And because they were religious, money is the root of all evil. And so this whole narrative you get around prosperity and luxury, it's almost, um, you know, it, it's it's a, it's a sin or it's not something that you should aspire there's to. A, yeah, I think there's a weird positive negative that goes on with affluence yeah. and and for lots of good reasons, you know, I mean, there are, we can all point to somebody with tons of money who would qualify as a evil supervillain, right? You know? Yeah. And, uh, and so that the whole religious concept that the love of money is the root of all evil does have some, you know, historical, if you're looking at the local, mm-hmm. uh, governor or the local, um, Roman, you know, um, 
centurion, mm-hmm. you know, and they're behaving in a way because they have this power and this control, mm-hmm. um, you're definitely going to associate negativity with yeah. wealth and power. But we also and, uh, have Dolly Parton, for example. Right, exactly. And then we have this whole, and especially in America, which was, you know, at least a piece of America was built on this idea that somebody could come here, start a little shop, or, you know, come from the, the hills of uh, uh, Tennessee or wherever she's from and, and like, make something of themselves, right? Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that goes – so I think with the celebrities, that is – I think what you're saying is a really good point is that there are tons of celebrities who started off with very little or nothing mm-hmm. or, you know, came from a whole different world. Um, and the fact that they are able to manage this wealth and hire, you know, scores of people or hundreds of people under them. They create their own economies, essentially. Yeah. We forget that, you know, celebrities can be their own economic driver. They can be their own, you know, they are their own business. And so they're definitely for us, they're definitely a bridge. You know, they may present even more posh than they are, but they've also like, they've learned some of the codes. They've learned some of the language. They've Mm. learned some of the, you know, kind of, external signaling and behavior that, you know, yeah, I think they have a, there's an unwavering self-belief, I think, which is common. And also, um, the willingness to take risks, you know, and I'll I'll come back again to my parents, right. They, they didn't, they didn't have any investments. They basically just had the house they lived in. I think, you know, they might've put money in bonds or something and they were basically, um, what happened when we moved to Libby was my dad was um, a landscaper for a guy who owned a very large tract of land on the Kootenai River, which is just a freaking stunning place. Yeah. And this guy owned, you know, something like 30, 40 acres. And my dad was um, landscaping it so that he could sell it off into a subdivision, right? And whenever someone was interested in buying, you know, and this is back in the 80s, he would say, oh, you know, an acre is like $3,000 or something, which at the time was pretty expensive. Anyway, this guy ended up going bankrupt because he was trying to hang on to all this stuff, stopped paying my dad for like three months before my dad worked out. He didn't really have a job anymore. Mm -hmm. But then what happened was all of that land was auctioned off by the government. And this was like pristine riverfront property like an acre going for 800 bucks. And at the time I was 14, I had $800 saved up from babysitting. I could have bought a chunk of land. It's worth millions of dollars now. Right. And my parents, I remember them talking about it and they're like, ooh, you know, it's super risky. We shouldn't, you know. So just that understa- that fear that I think, again, you know, celebrities have got that self-belief and there's no fear. It's like, I am all in on this, you know, I'll run myself to the ground or I'm going to make it to the moon. Like either way, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's absolutely a piece of the puzzle. And, and yeah, where we're like, if we get some cash, we're more likely to like, hold on to it. it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Stash it somewhere. And uh, yeah, no, I think that's a, that's gotta be a huge piece of the puzzle. And they, and, you know, and they learn this through hard work and through trial and error and, you know, everything else. So, you know, going back once again, yeah, if you've, I mean, you know, I think about somebody like George Clooney, who, you know, he's, there's two, I think, really cool things about what he does. One is he deliberately does blockbusters so that he can finance smaller projects and, you know, his, his passion projects. And it doesn't matter if those make money. 
Mm -hmm. um, but those are the award winners. And then obviously his activism goes far beyond, you know, some PSAs. And I mean, he bought a freaking spy uh, satellite to kind of spy on Darfur and the atrocities that were going on. Uh, because the American government and the and the European governments couldn't, they weren't allowed to, mm -hmm. but a private individual could, and uh, you know, so he, you know, he, uh, I think, I think he, you know, he's definitely somebody that's along that. Obviously, he he had a little bit of kind of insider Hollywood upbringing, but um, but you know, he still had to like he saw that learn that there was a bigger world that you know beyond being a star and. Uh, but, you know, so going back to like how that translates to, um, I was, I tell people like, there are definitely people I've met that seem grounded and, um, cool and intelligent. And there are people I've met that seem, uh, uh, like they don't give a shit about you. Like they're like, they're, you're, you're just a pest that they have to deal with. But I remind people that, uh, you know, your brief encounter with a celebrity is the same as somebody's brief encounter with you on the train, right? Mm -hmm. So normally you're courteous and you get out of, you know, you let people on and off the train or whatever. And one day you had a bad day and you just, you're, you're making noises and you're upset at everybody and you're, you know, pushing somebody out of the way and you're not yielding your seat, whatever. So if you met somebody, you know, a famous person, uh, briefly at a, a, you know, a convention or in the airport or whatever, and they, you know, were rude to you or, or, you know, gave you no mind. It's highly possible they're having a shitty day. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. It's like, exactly. it's like, um, but I think that I think I, I, my favorite, uh, I'm trying to think of like one of my favorite interactions was actually with, um, Mila Kunis. Oh, she I love was, her. yeah. And she was working with, uh, um, is it wild turkey? No, uh, Jim Beam. Mm -hmm. She was working with Jim Beam, and they had an event, a launch event, um, and uh, they had us do one-on-one -on -one interviews with her. And so we're in this beautiful, like one of those, like you know, vertical um, townhome spaces in New York with like a bar on the first floor, and then you know these kind of older, you know, uh, uh, post-Victorian wood and carpeted spaces up above. And, you know, so I'm sitting in a room with her and we're going through the typical interview stuff. And then we just kind of cut loose a little bit. You know, we had enough time that, you know, we chatted about uh, we chatted about the dessert trays going past. And we chatted about, you know, her, you know, kind of her experiences with some of the, you know, the, the stuff that was making news at the time. Like, I think she'd uh, she'd uh, dated a, a, a military guy who went to the prom with him because he asked her, right? You know, like on social media. That's right. I remember and that. She was like one of the first uh, celebrities to do that, you know, just like say, heck yeah, I'll go to the dance with you. Um, and we got to go really off script and she was just totally committed the whole time. And the funny thing about that, two, two interesting things was I noticed she wasn't drinking, drinking. And, um, and in fact, later in the evening, Ashton Kutcher came and got her and not long after she announced her pregnancy, but I, I knew it. I was like, I know why she's not drinking. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and the other was, so we had this great time and she just seems like really focused and really, you know, um, grounded and really, you know, just, you know, in the moment and everything. And I come down, you know, this was such a great interview. We're sitting face to face, such a great interview. Thanks. You, thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Uh, I go down to the bar where everybody's, you know, having the signature drinks and stuff. And the bartender who I know is like 
Robert, um, your fly's undone. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, shit. And so I zip up, and now Kutcher is there, and, and she's with him. And I'm like, and I just, you know, now I've had a couple drinks, right? And so I go up, and I said, oh, thank you again so much for the interview. I just think it's funny because uh, uh, I just, you know, I didn't know my fly was down the whole time. She goes, oh, I would never have noticed that. I wasn't really looking at you. I mean, she didn't say it quite that bluntly, but <laughs> I was like, Oh, right. Of course. Of course. You weren't looking at my crotch. <laughs> I'm not that important to her. Um, uh, but, but I was here in the spirits world. Here's somebody who uh, walks the walk and talks the talk. Because a lot of times, as with any of the celebrity stuff, you know, you buy, you know, I don't know, you know, Britney Spears perfume. She didn't like pick the perfume. Yeah. You know, she might have smelled like four samples and gone, this one's good. Um, but there's uh, Steven Soderbergh has a. Uh, a spirit. I'm going to get this completely wrong because I don't actually, let me do this the right way. Hang on one second. But he was down in uh, Sauter Berg spirit. <laughs> Singani uh, 63. He was down in Bolivia filming uh, Che and um, there's a long shoot in the jungle and stuff. And they were being treated with this, this local um, kind of white spirit uh, called Singani. And he grew to love it. And so he decided to launch a, a branded version of it here. Mm -hmm. But he is 100% vested into it. He uh, you know, works with the, the people distilling it down there. He works with it here. He's got two or three really core people that he... So he will talk your ear off about the spirit and about anything else. I've got like literally hours of interview uh, tapes with him talking about everything. I, I asked him, I was like, so when you got into this, did you like call Dan Aykroyd and say, or <laughs> and say, how do you launch a spirit brand? And he goes, no, not really. <laughs> you know, it's like, but you know, uh, but he is a hundred percent vested. So his product is as much. Yeah. As any movie of his, right. So he's mm. the, the same way with his movies. Um, but he's great to drink with nice. and talk about spirits. <laughs> so who has the best liquor? Uh, best celebrity liquor. Best celebrity liquor. I mean, that one's pretty good, it, but it's not necessarily like it, it's a white spirit. So it's a strong spirit, right? Mm. Um, in terms of quality and complexity, gosh, I don't know. Um, I, I used to like Casamigos, but I have to admit that I, I think they've changed their, uh, that's Clooney's brand. I think they've changed their formula a little bit in recent years. So everybody's moving their tequila to taste more sweet, mm. you know, adjusting it with some additives that I don't know. I shouldn't say that. I don't know if Casamigos uses additives, but, uh, were but, you a fan um, of, um, aviation gin? I love aviation and I love how Reynolds has marketed it. And he's another one that, so that existed before he acquired it. Um, but he, uh, he, uh, is super involved with the company. And there was even a, a year or two ago, I can't quite remember what the, the genesis of it, but he sent out like a company email when there was some, you know, I don't know if it was like when lockdown started or something, I can't remember, but it was, it was like a, personal like from ryan reynolds to wow. joe smith sales associate you know um and uh, of course his campaigns are hilarious yeah of um, course. and um 
and aviation's one that I think they've, they've tr- strived really hard to keep the same production values that they had before it was acquired, mm-hmm. um, which is always a question when you're making something go bigger, right? Yeah, of um, course. There's an interesting one with um, uh, Ciroc, you know, which is uh, uh, Sean Combs's vodka. So it was being independently produced um, years and years ago, and I happened to be at their distillery in cognac in southern france or western france um and it was all being it was at that point it was like a white tablecloth fancy vodka that barely had a presence in the u.s it was like you know older like advertising execs execs loved it and everything and while i was there they were the ink was drying on the deal with uh with uh sean combs and uh and the the guy running it was super excited and of course, it's it's blown up, and it's a huge vodka now. Yeah, it's massive. But it, the 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 focus shifted to kind of young men and young men of color, especially and young uh, um, men who were out at nightclubs and things like that. And it's weird to me; it's the exact same juice. It's made the exact same way, but the kind of larger white middle class perception of it changed. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, is that that hip hop vodka? I don't want that. <laughs> that's that party boy, party boy vodka. Oh, I don't want that. that's. So and bizarre. it was the first, yeah, it was the first time I, I, I was like, wow, the power of celebrity is a double-edged sword. Yeah. And that's without a celebrity being canceled or being, you know, which has happened uh, with some of the spirits brands uh, that I've worked with. Where I've had to, like, I'm hearing something happening and I send a note to the publicist. I'm like, do you have a statement yet on this? And they're like, uh, we're still looking into this, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think that's a really fascinating one because obviously Combs is, you know, he's not making the vodka, no. but he cares about it and yeah. he cares about his marketing. And to have to kind of know that you're going to get this, like that you're going to uh, alienate a certain group of people because of your music and your skin color and your, you know, the age of your fans is like, even though the product itself has not changed, like that has not changed. Exactly. So ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, what times we live in. Ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay, so one one thing I want to ask you is about your own personal journey because I know for myself, um, I have I have not uh, you know met the ex- the huge amount of people that you have or, or traveled in luxury circles, but I can tell you that through um, you know my own job in technology and traveling around the world, you know being you know I remember when we were courting Visa before we became a partner with them, you know there's some pretty high profile meetings and so the quality of everything goes up. So the quality of the wine goes up, the quality of the food, everything. And I'm just a girl from small town, Montana. I didn't have any of this stuff, but I notice that, you know, my palate graduates and like, I can't, I can't, uh, you know, I go, I go from thinking that anything that's bubbly, that's champagne is amazing to, I can't freaking drink it if it's not, you know, verb or crystal or right away, you know, like I just can't, <laughs> like, I'm sorry, get away. And so how, um, I think that's a thing. Like as you, as you start to get used to the taste and you start to notice it does affect your palate. Um, so how did that affect you? And like, where do you, where are you now on the, like, if I were to sit down and give you a glass of whiskey from my house, would you be like garbage? Or <laughs> So, so to answer that question first, no. In fact, it's always funny when like somebody, so I have my, you know, I have my certification, uh, wine certifications from the American Sommelier Association, the wine and, and, uh, wine and spirits education trust. And I have some spirit certifications. Um, and I've edited a couple books about the subject and things like that. 
And it's funny because I'll be at somebody's house and I'm like, oh, you know, I only have this kind of wine. I'm like, hey, any kind of wine you have is the right kind of wine, right? You know, right. it's like you'll hear people, you know, say this in like interviews and stuff. It's like drink what you like, whatever. Now, I'm not a big fan of like a strawberry Chardonnay or something like that. No. And there are certainly wines that are more palatable and less palatable. And there are wines that are, are I, 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 I find it really difficult to drink two by Chuck. And I like lots of cheap wines, but for some reason there's something in there, at least in their Cabernet that is like, just really creates me. I think there are some though that, um, will give you like an instant headache, you know? Yeah. The yeah. It feels content. like you're already, yeah. yeah. Uh, but that said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like, you know, if you've got, um, I don't know what I'm trying to think about kind of a low rent, uh, spirit that, you, you know, low rent whiskey. I mean, I don't consider Jack Daniels low rent, but you know, if you give me a glass of Jack, that's as great as, you know, anything else. Mm. Um, what, but what I do notice is kind of what you were saying. So, yeah. So especially when I was, I was doing food and drink in New York, cause there were a lot of times I worked for, um, I worked I, for a while. I worked, I wrote for CBS local, um, and I did stuff for Time Out New York and whatever. Um, and then as you say, as you're like, you know, moving up the ladder in terms of events and stuff, um, you, you're just exposed to more and more. They, we we did this trip to southern Sweden with, um, I think it's called Purity Vodka, and they had we had a six no four hour caviar seminar with this brand I forget the brand but just super super high end caviar and we're having these intricate tastings with just huge dollops of you know the best caviar and the different classes and everything and pairings and everything. And I don't know how much was spent on that, but it was, it's really hard to just grab a tin of fish eggs out of the deli and, you know, <laughs> eat it after that. But, but what I, what I do notice coming from New York, being in the food and drink scene there and both bars and restaurants is, you know, you have this insane variety and depth and breadth all the way from, you know, the, the, the ladies selling, uh, you know, uh, 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 corn under the, you know, the bridge in Queens, uh, which is amazing. The Elote corn all the way up to, you know, the five-star, you know, four-star, three-star Michelin, three-star Michelin restaurants and, mm -hmm. you know, um, and top rated tasting menus and all those things is that, you know, coming here now, Seattle proper, the Seattle, you know, central area has an amazing food and drink scene. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's smaller, right? Mm -hmm. But there's amazing, amazing bars and restaurants. But our little stretch up here in Issaquah, there's, you know, like kind of the chain, kind of the mini chains that the Northwest has of a fish place and a Mexican place and a, and a, a wine bar and, you know, pizza place and things like that. And it's, it's, I can't get excited about eating at them. And, you know, like I'll be on next door and somebody like, what's a great, you know, Indian restaurant. We do have some fantastic Indian restaurants here, but most of them are kind of these generic mini chains that are mm -hmm. perfectly mm -hmm. fine, but they're not exciting. There's no. a sameness to their, to their food, you know, all across the, across the cuisines. I don't mean like to that one restaurant. I mean, like if you go to the, the fish restaurant one night and the Mexican restaurant the next night and the Indian restaurant the next night, there's some sort of like similarity in all the food and yeah. all the amount of fat and sugar and everything else. Oh, look, I, I agree. And I, I think again, you know, we were talking before we started recording, you know, I lived a life like where I did not stop traveling since 2007. And this is the longest I've been in a single place for since 2007 and yeah. through COVID. 
and I'm enjoying it. And one of the things um, that's happened, my partner, Mike, he's an incredible cook and he's improved you know, immeasurably throughout the two years, um, he's starting. Yeah, we all time. had to become much better. Exactly. Experiments and I, I can make perfect Parisian uh, croissants. I that's nice. what I did. So that nice. was my kitchen project. I'm the baker. Nice. Um, but he, you know, he's starting his own hot sauce business. And even when things opened up very briefly, we didn't race out to go eat out or anything like that. You know, there's exactly. a lot. There's a lot of people that are like, oh, I can't wait to go out and blah blah blah. And because what I realized was that a lot of the dining out that I did was in that, in that, you know, sort of bandwidth that you're sort of talking about. It's like, it's not super great. It's not bad. It's just, yeah, it's you know, perfectly fine to fine. go with friends and yeah. But like, order. yeah, I've gotten to the point where the, the home meals are much better than that yeah. level. So if we are going to go out, like we went out recently with friends to um, canoe here in Toronto, which is a great restaurant, you know? And so I think, I think, that's what I want to enjoy in the dining experience now is not like I'm just going out cause it's convenient and um, exactly. It's got to stand out. It's got, yeah. it's um, you know, and there's also on the flip side of that, you get insanely jaded. And I, I remember, you know, everybody had every, re every super high end restaurant had these like, you know, several hundred dollar tasting menus where it's like, you know, little course after little course and it's all perfectly prepared and, and innovative and I was kind of sick of them, and it, which was the, like the most arrogant thing to say, you know. Like, oh, I'm never, you know <laughs> these are so boring. I'm not going to eat. And then we went to um, uh, 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 Blue Hill at Stone Barn outside of outside of the city, and it was a revelation. It was some of the best food I've ever had, and I've, mm. I've eaten it, you know, um, all over, you know, top restaurants all over the world, and. Um, but uh, but yeah, there was there was, there was like there was like eh, you know I don't need this zillion dollar tasting menu. But yeah, no, we same thing. When things were opening up, I was like, you know, I'm like, I'll if I'm hungry, and there's you know one thing I I really like here, especially in Seattle proper, but just all over the all over the metro area, are just a huge plethora of East Asian restaurants. Yeah. So you know, again, talking about what we grew up with, you know, I grew up with like a Chinese American restaurant, maybe two you know, later a Vietnamese restaurant, right? Later, later, later a sushi place. And, um, Oh man. And, and I know. And In living now, sushi... there's literally two restaurants that essentially have the same menu. Exactly. It's, it's nice. just burgers <laughs> and like, you know, the, the old school taco salad, you know? Right. And, um, and then there's, there's, but there's a couple of places that have sprung up that are attempting to be like, you know, proper gastro pub food there's you know the shed which is great and then they actually have like a place called the blackboard which is nice. even more upmarket. and the fact that it can be you know sustained in a community like that and and again i'm not meaning any of this to be like i'm such a snob because i no, only that's, a, that's a huge thing though like like so my sister's in emmett and similar thing it was you know it was the 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 uh, breakfast place with, you know, good donuts and huge, uh, chicken fried steaks or whatever. And it was a couple of like, you know, whatever. And now same thing, like a community that small has, uh, you know, I don't think they have a craft cocktail place, but they have solid cocktail places. They have a couple of these inventive, you know, um, uh, kind of for lack of a better, I don't know what the right word is kind of new, new American restaurants, you know, with inventive food combinations and super fresh ingredients and, you know, local chefs. And mm. yeah, it is amazing that these smaller, but, uh, 
even in New York, the, you know, outside of the, um, kind of the, um, Chinese, the variety of Chinese restaurants and cuisines that are, that are open. Like when we were leave, when we left in, in, uh, 2018, they were only starting to get kind of the variety of Japanese restaurants beyond uh, sushi restaurants. So they were only starting to get high quality ramen places, only starting to get a few izakayas, you know, those mm-hmm. kind of things. Mm-hmm. Coming to Seattle, just like I, it's, I, I'll walk down the Ave and I'll be like, well, maybe today I'll try this uh, part of this district of Vietnam. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'll try that district of Vietnam. And, and I'm still such a neophyte with it, but uh, our, our son happens to love the international district. Um, and so we'll go and we'll just try a new spot and we'll try, you know, to get the, the, the kind of the most interesting, obscure thing we can get. And that's where my kind of my, uh, food excitement comes now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's definitely, uh, it, it is one of those things that I think we, you know, I'm not sure we knew everything we were not exposed to when we were young, especially because I think your parents were like mine. They, they wanted to explore and they wanted to try new things. So it wasn't like I didn't, like I had, i I loved escargot by the time I was in, you know, 10th grade. Cause mm-hmm. there was one kind of super high end gourmet restaurant mm-hmm. and I get to go for my birthday and, and, uh, but, uh, but I didn't know there was, you know, everything there is out in the world yeah, and, 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 and having that exposure and having that, um, opportunity has been just the biggest, you know, the biggest piece of this. And I, mm. you know, I talked to, well, you know, the one thing I like about booze over, uh, food, even and fashion is that it's one of the few things we savor because they're from different parts of the world. Yeah. Right. So, you know, obviously tequila, Mexico, scotch, Scotland, you know, but rum can be made all over the world. Mm-hmm. I, I just, there's a South African rum that's just hitting the U S that I want. I'm excited to try and talk to the, the people producing it. Um, and so you're, you're deliberately kind of traveling with it and with all the pros and cons that involves, like now we're finally starting to recognize, like one of the things I've been on a jag about for the last decade or so is kind of the environmental consequences of distillation Mm -hmm. and winemaking, but especially just the winemaking is kind of in such a narrow environmental band that it kind of runs the same issues all around the world more or less. Um, but, uh, but spirits can be made anywhere. Mm-hmm. So you'll run into water issues, labor issues, resource issues, pollution issues, all these kind of things. Um, but at the same point, it also means, you know, like today I'm drinking something from Bolivia and tomorrow I'm drinking something from Taipei and the next day I'm drinking something from Colorado. And, um, which means that, you know, for the, the writers, we get to go everywhere right yeah, you know it's yeah. like i've been invited to cleveland to distilleries in cleveland and i've been invited <laughs> to distilleries in bolivia you know and uh um and so talking to various art you know friends and that are in the industry and same thing with the bartenders now bartenders get to travel like crazy mm-hmm. if they're in a high you know in a good bar mm-hmm. um and and the producers too there, there was i i did a thing with this group of small whiskey produ- independent whiskey producers kind of at the start of when we were starting to really get interested in small whiskeys and small distilleries. And it's all these good old boys from like, you know, Kentucky and New York and stuff. And they're talking about their time in like, like the center of China, right. They're like, they have to carry their wares to, you know, 
you know, where Wuhan or wherever and, and, uh, you know, sell them there. And so, you know, all of a sudden they're more worldly than 80% of the people in the country. Which is, I mean, I think that's great. Like, I think, I think, well, and I think even, um, you know, some of the cooking shows that people have gotten into watching, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Mm -hmm. people like that, when they go all around the world and, and, um, really bring that into people's home. I think, I think people are more adventurous. Um, pe- people that haven't traveled are more adventurous with food than, um, than they normally would be. And I think, that's yeah, right. I think certainly anytime since world war two for North America. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think, I think it's really exciting and yeah, play people like Anthony Bourdain and, um, there's a great series on Netflix called High on the Hog. I oh, I know that, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the yeah. Young blogger, but it's basically looking at the effects of the African diaspora yes. on cuisine, especially That's in the great. US. But, That's a great show. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know, using food as a, a jumping off platform for for sociopolitical issues, for um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like you appreciate it more, you learn more, and then it makes you hungry. I still yeah. haven't watched that that Stanley Tucci series. Oh uh, yeah. About it. Yeah, because I, I I know I would just go out and eat all the food. Exactly. I know. I'm a little bit nervous about that one myself. <laughs> all right. Well, I feel like I have um, just a couple more questions before we might wrap up. Um, so for you personally, uh, just if, if our listeners were going to go out and be adventurous, let's say, with some liquor that they might not try, um, you know, what are some of the things you would recommend that would fit, you know, like without breaking the bank, but you could start to get a, a taste of like, you know, I want to elevate my palate um, above what I'm drinking currently. So I think there's, I think there's a couple things. One is if there's a spirit that you've sworn off since college because you had a bad experience <laughs> with it, which I certainly did. Um, or, you know, your parents drank it and it just never clicked with you when you had a sip or whatever the, the case is. That's a good one to explore because generally our bad experience was with a bad product, right? Okay, mine's rum, so you can go ahead. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. It's, and and mine was gin forever and ever and Canadian Club, which I still can't drink. No. <laughs> but and tequila, matter of fact, come to think. Um, and uh, But more often than not, it's because we had a whole lot of a really cheap product, right? Yeah. So, you know, there's – to me, I think that's, that's going to be – your best way to get into the bigger world of spirits mm-hmm. is overcoming this kind of like, you know, phobia or this kind of aversion. <clears throat> and, um, you know, so start like, you know, go to a, a bar. If it's, if it's gin, find a bar that's got like 30 gins and, you know, quiz the, uh, quiz the bartender and, you mm-hmm. know, look for one that's softer and more floral instead of more juniper forward, try it in a different cocktails, whatever. Um, so in general, I think, you know, approaching a couple categories that maybe either intimidate you, like maybe champagne or something like that, or that like just put you right off. Right. Yeah, so it's yeah. like, and, um, uh, and, and that really was like when I was first starting to write about spirits, like gin and tequila were both ones that I had avoided for a long time. And, uh, and they were both ones that suddenly I was tasting these much, much, much better, uh, variations of and coming to appreciate how different they were. Mm-hmm. Even vodka is different, right? So, you know, we mm-hmm. think of vodka as just smelling like alcohol, but because of the base, the base product can be different and the, you know, the process can be different. If you set five or six side by side and do a blind tasting, you're going to find differences. But then the other thing I think is like with a lot of the categories now, 
there's so many great products at affordable prices. So mm-hmm. bourbon, especially, it's almost it's really difficult to find a bad bourbon these days. Among you know, I mean, you if there's a big plastic jug and it costs seven dollars, <laughs> it's probably not gonna yeah you know. But all the basic ones, Four Roses, and I mean, Four Roses used to it was bouncing around a bunch among a ton of different owners in the seventies and eighties, and it just was floundering, right? But you know, it, it's a different product now and you know so wild turkey four roses jim beam all of those um uh have you know just incredible entry-level products um but uh i think the ones that i I think the ones that i really like kind of send people towards monkey shoulder um is Mm, a blended malt whiskey it's delicious and it works great in cocktails and it's affordable and it's a great entry into the scotch category um, uh, trying to think on, on bourbons. Uh, I so mean, you know what I think we should do? I've had this idea because I think you're too rad to only have on one episode. What I think <laughs> we should do is we should have a future episode where yeah. we actually do a tasting of things together. Oh, that'd be fantastic. And like, you know, you can just walk us through and, um, you know, we could let listeners know ahead of time, maybe what was going to be, if they wanted to taste along and you could guide us through a tasting. I think that would be amazing to do something like that. Yeah, that would be great. And actually that we, the kind of segues into, uh, you know, the things I'm doing now because I'm in Seattle and not New York, I'm not at the epicenter of product launches and mm-hmm. events and new bars. I mean, there are new bars here, but of like, you know, big high profile bars and, um, is I'm, I'm actually teaching, uh, whiskey tasting classes mm-hmm. and, uh, cocktail classes um, and I just um, was on uh, a Twitch TV program called uh, Fight Night, where these two young hosts normally play video games against each other, and their viewers uh, vote on who wins. So even if the per- if one person wins the game, they may not win the episode. Right. right. <clears throat> so they had us. They had uh, uh, myself and a, a, a bartender on, um, tied in with uh, Lagavulin whiskey, which is the one that Nick Offerman. Um, advertises for. Oh, yeah. I've seen his campaign. Um, but we kind of, uh, they, they did a paint-by-number kind of uh, activity while we talked about whiskey and stuff like that. So we might be doing something more with that moving forward. So can, um, can people join these tastings, like, online with you? Now? If that one, if that one happens, yeah, that'll, that'll, there'll be something like that where, you know, hopefully, you know, there'll be enough advanced notice that, you know, you could pick up a bottle or, uh, you know, yeah. um, and do you, pro- do you have a platform that you promote yourself on? Or are you just like, um, yeah, no, Instagram is probably the easiest one to like, so it's, uh, at Haynes Peterson at H A Y N E S P E T E R S O N. Okay. Um, and uh, otherwise it's, you know, Google it, Google it and you'll find an article. Um, <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Okay. Now that, I think that would be awesome. Let's definitely, definitely do that. Yeah, that would be cool. I would like that. Cause it is, I think for people who are trying to get beyond vodka tonics or whatever, not yeah. vodka tonics are awesome. And well, well drinks, 
you know, like yeah, and well drinks or whatever, or trying to find a comfort level because mm-hmm. um, it it can be you walk into a bar, especially nowadays, and not only do you not recognize the cocktails, but they have ingredients, and you're like, I don't know what any of this stuff is. I don't know what the heck that is. Yeah, like you know, being casually comfortable with cocktails or with wine mm. is the same thing as casually comfortable with anything else, with sports or anything mm. else. It's like you don't have to you know know every player on every team to enjoy it, but it does help. <laughs> to like kind of have a sense of, you know, how yeah. the Seahawks are doing this year or, you know, whatever. Well, and quality does matter. Cause I, I remember myself, I had some very bad experiences with Brown spirits in college, mm-hmm. scotch in particular, scotch and rum. And um, so I just, I just didn't drink Brown spirits for the longest time, you know? And then um, I was living in San Fran for, I was, once we, won the visa business. I was the relationship manager. So I was based in San Fran for 18 months. And, um, one of the guys I was working with for my birthday took me to uh, bourbon and branch and it's one of oh, those. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. it's, you know, Excellent. bottled after the old speakeasies, you know, you have to have a password and it's mainly bourbon handmade co- made cocktails. Like that's predominantly what's on the menu. And I was like, Oh God, what am I going to drink? <laughs> you know, but it actually, um, it was that experience that made me then open up to brown spirits again because, you know, I wasn't drinking half a bottle of cheap scotch and boxing right. everywhere. You know, I was actually sipping a really nice cocktail with other flavors, you know, and then I got to appreciate um, just sipping whiskey with a friend of mine in New Zealand. He got, you know, right into it. And, you know, we would have just, I mean, I would just have like a finger, you know, and just really taste it and taste um you know, some of it was like, oh, this is a little bit more petrol or this is a bit more peaty, you know, like, and starting to experience myself with the distinction of, of things. And um, I think you're right. I think the experimenting and just not being afraid to go back and revisit some of yeah. those wrongs that you did in your youth. <laughs> exactly. And, and, and those kind of bars are perfect for it too, because, you know, the bartenders ideally will be able to kind of walk you around, you know, if they have the time, if it's busy, you know, just order something and shut up. But uh, <laughs> if they have the time to walk you around, you're like, well, I just really, you know, those big smoky PD scotches scare me. And so they can like start you off with something and ease you into it. Um, and the other n- nice thing to do is, um, Almost every, well, every state now and almost every community has, uh, and I'm sure this is, uh, I know it's true for BC. I'm sure it's true for most of the provinces. There are amazing little distilleries, independent distilleries everywhere yes. now. And almost all of them are set up now to accommodate guests where they weren't mm. even a, a decade or so ago. And, I actually um, have a high school friend who runs a distillery in Saskatchewan. And I oh, hope nice. to get out there. The name yeah. me at the moment, but yeah, anyway. And and it's one of those things, just like when you're visiting wineries, sometimes the wine tastes great at the winery after you've done the tour and you've done the tastings and stuff. And you get home and you're like, eh, this is okay. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not always going to be the best, <coughs> excuse me, um, product out there, but it's a great way to start to understand and ask questions, mm-hmm. you know, and especially with brown spirits, you know, where there's so much more involved in terms of getting it from the still to the barrel and mm-hmm. getting it into the bottle. But even with vodka and gin, going in and seeing the process, asking the questions, and then tasting the product. And, you know, especially when it's a little distillery, you're often talking to the distiller, to the owner, mm-hmm. you know, which gives you a kind of a bond with it. But it's yeah. that's also a great way to like, I'm sorry. <coughs> Start exploring. Yeah, expand your horizons yeah. a bit. Awesome. All right. 
I have um, one, I mean, I could talk to you for another hour, <laughs> but um, yeah, we'll just have to have a future episode. Um, so just one last question. Uh, what is your favorite memory of our friendship? Uh, I think, I think the, 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 being in Seattle and I do remember, I don't remember exactly. I feel like you and I were still jabbering the night we were all like, people were trying to get to sleep and, uh, in that room when we're, you know, in Seattle for the concert. Yeah. And I think we were both kind of still jazzed from whatever we'd done. Uh, pissing other people off. <laughs> but I think that trip was like, it was, I don't know. It, it's such a highlight of my life. Yeah. And, um, and to be honest, I'm like from Renaissance fair. I remember you and I remember, uh, Lisa, um, can't remember her last name. Uh, and I think Ellen and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Kate, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that was, I, I, that's I was, for, for a tiny little kind of side activity among all the other things we did at Whitman. Yeah. That was such a highlight. That was too. Like, I, I would agree. That's a fantastic time. And I mean, that was the bulk of our interaction was through Renaissance fair. You know, there was a little bit through, um, Kimberly and Kappa there at the end, but, um, yeah, that's the, that's the fondest memories I have. I have one other funny memory of you and it was, I think it was at the five year reunion, right? And it came back and we were doing the fun run and oh, right. um, I was lining up with yeah, you. Yeah, you were running. Yeah. I'm like, we were, David and I were dying. You were running. <laughs> but the funniest thing was I was lining up with you and David and the both of you just went, okay, so we agree that no baby strollers this year are going to pass us. That's the goal. <laughs> no baby strollers. And I just thought that was like flipping hilarious because I think one of the things I always appreciate about you is, you know, your great sense of humor. You're very funny and I've had a lot of laughs with you and I hadn't seen you for so long. And I went, Oh yes, that's Robert. That's Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to have goals. You got to have uh, achievable do. goals. Achievable <laughs> goals. That's right. <laughs> Did nope. any baby strollers pass you that day? I can't remember. I don't think so, but I think we still got beat by an old man. So, uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm telling, so apparently our, our big reunion is coming up this fall. Yes. We have a reunion this yes. fall. I'm planning to come. Nice. Excellent. Yeah. And so I haven't run in years. Uh, David's been running a little bit with his daughter, but I told him, I'm like, we got to get ready for the 5k, man. <laughs> and so he's so angry at me because we're obviously not spring chickens anymore. And, I, uh, yeah. I unfortunately broke my ankle. I remember. So I'm a cyclist now. I'm not a runner anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, Otherwise, so I'm my silly. secret, my secret plan is you know, he's running a mile or so with his daughter every few days or whatever, is I'm going to get out there and just like run a little more, a little more, a little more each day Nice. until this fall. And then I will be like, see you later, David. You need to talk to Kathy Wickware because she runs every freaking day. I know. I can't believe it. Even <laughs> in the snow and everything. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, I know. Impressive. Impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. So much fun. Yeah, again, we will do another episode because I'm excited. I think there's a lot of stuff that we could touch on um, and get a little bit more in depth on the spirit side. And I would love to do that. But yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Awesome. And uh, yeah, this was great. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> we'll talk right. soon. Next time, we chat with Angie Tumlinson, who is an expert on the universal laws 
and really understands life transformation. If you're interested in learning more about that, join us in the next episode.